My grandmother was living in a rigidly segregated, discriminatory world. But by the same token, she taught me that there were no limits to what I could accomplish. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Well, it's uh, my pleasure to be spending uh, some time today with Rick Dean from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Rick, I can see you on a Zoom call. You're my first podcast interview with via Zoom. Well, I'm glad to have that honor. Yeah, I don't know if it's an honor, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> to, to give people some uh, context uh, for you, uh, I'm just going to share just if I were to do a one-minute bio, this would be my one-minute bio. and It would be that Rick Dean is, is uh, a lawyer in Georgia, and he grew up in Georgia and went to law school in Georgia. He ultimately got his LLM from University of Michigan in uh, studying the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. He uh, came out of that LLM program and worked as a federal prosecutor in Georgia. And uh, then he moved to be a federal magistrate. Um, And from there, he became the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, confirmed by President Clinton, and then continued on, if if I'm remembering correctly, for one year under President Bush. He uh, served as the United States Attorney for about four years and then uh, uh, left to go be the uh, partner in charge of the Atlanta office of the the giant mega mammoth law firm of Jones Day. And basically, Rick is a serious, serious lawyer and a serious guy, and uh, it is really a privilege Let's start with uh, how you ended up getting into law. Of all the careers, uh, you, you grew up in Montezuma, Georgia. How does someone come from Montezuma, Georgia, to become the United States Attorney out of Atlanta? <laughs> so, well, it's a long, uh, a long journey. But, uh, of course, probably the most important thing was uh, just being anchored by, by really my grandmother, I grew up primarily with my grandmother there in Montezuma. Montezuma is a really small, small town in South Georgia. She and I would, in the evenings, watch TV together, and um, we would watch Perry Mason. And um, uh, she she really liked the show, and uh, because she did, I I came to like it myself. And she would talk to me about you know what we were watching on TV. And she basically told me that uh, I could do that, that I could be a lawyer, that I could uh, do the things that, I, that we were both watching there on TV. And over time, that sort of crystallized in my, in my thinking. And, and years later, of course, uh, you know, I was able to pursue it. But I, you know, when I went to law school, frankly, I'd never met a lawyer. I, I, all I knew about or thought I knew about the practice of law <laughs> really came from watching TV. Yeah. I, I did not have a watch Perry Mason, but it was my mother that told me when I was like eight, you're going to be a lawyer now. And <laughs> it just stuck in my head. Like, okay. You know, that, that seems to make yeah, sense. Yeah. So, uh, if, if we were to go back to uh, everyone doesn't have the benefit of knowing how old you are, but just to give some perspective, when you were eight, what, what was it like in southern Georgia where you grew up? What was the climate like there? Not in terms of weather, but what, what, what was the racial climate like, the economic climate like? To give people some perspective, I, I'm in my uh, mid-60s. And so when I was growing up there, um, you know, it was a fairly rigidly segregated community. Um, this was still doing, uh, during the time of Jim Crow laws being just in effect, but being actively enforced. And uh, so I went to segregated schools. Uh, you know, I couldn't go to any number of places, libraries, um, 
or something like that. Um, so it was originally segregated little community and uh, the times were uh, just in the midst of, at least during the time that I'm talking about, it was in the midst of uh, uh, the Jim Crow, uh, Jim Crow laws being very much in effect uh, and, and everything around me and everything about this little town was just simply rigidly uh, segregated. And that was, uh, that was the life that we lived. And I believe 1965, uh, my mom and dad decided that they wanted to be a part of integrating the school system there in Macon. And so I, they decided to send me to uh, the previously segregated. Uh, uh, by this time, I was, in the, I was just finishing the eighth grade, going into ninth grade. Uh, and they decided that uh, they wanted to be a part of integrating the system there. And so they sent me over to uh, what was previously the all white. And, and at the time it was an all boys uh, school. And uh, so that I believe was in 1965. I believe that's right. Did, did you have a uh, input in that decision or was that a, a <laughs> unilateral? <laughs> well, I had precious little input in it. My, you know, my dad, my stepdad actually, uh, was a pastor, minister there in Macon. And now at the time, this decision was made. He hadn't gone into the ministry yet. But it wasn't long thereafter that he went into the ministry and became something of a community leader there in Macon. But I had very little uh, say in the decision. I, you know, they, they, they asked me what <laughs> I do it and, 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 uh, and did I want to do it and all, all of that. But the reality was that they made the decision and, uh, you know, I went. How do you feel about it? Can you remember well, going back there to the, either the feelings or the thought process that were going through your head at that time? You mean as they were telling me about it or as I made the transition? As they were basically saying, uh, you're going to be doing this, but kind of inviting you in at some level to a dialogue on it. Yeah, uh, I was resistant. I didn't want to do it. I, I liked the high school. Well, I liked the junior high and, and was anticipating going into the senior high that I was, that I was in. I, I, I didn't want to make a change. But it turned out that you know, two of my best friends um, at the time, they were going through similar kinds of th discussions with their mother and father. And um, so we ended up, uh, I think there were six of us, I believe, who, uh, who in the end uh, went over to the previously all-white uh, all school. But I, you know, I didn't want to go and I, I didn't... Um, I didn't uh, look forward to it at all. I was dreading it in many ways. Uh, but, you know, they had the foresight to see that this was something that, that I needed to do and, and, frankly, that they needed to do. And so I did it. Um, I hope I don't get too personal. He's not in the first five minutes. But <laughs> what, what was it for dreading? What, what were you dreading back well, then? Well, you know... Again, mind you, I, I was coming out of what I've described to you as a fairly, well, not fairly, a, a rigidly segregated society, a world that was built on the notion that uh, whites and blacks didn't interact. Now, mind you, I live, even when I was living with my grandmother, barely 100 yards from me was a, was a white family. Uh, but they may as well have been hundred miles from me because, uh, you know, that was just the nature of the, the interactions that we have, which was none. Yeah. And now and then, you know, we might see or say something to one another, uh, across the, across the way, but you know, there was no interaction whatsoever. How, how, how was that first, uh, year of transition for you? <laughs> it was uh, traumatic. It was uh, really, really different. Um, uh, you know, the, the, 
I guess the teachers and the administration of the school, uh, as I think back on it now, I guess they were, uh, I won't say that they were accepting of the notion. I'll, I will say that they were professional in how they went about it. And um, uh, you know, they made us as, as welcome, I, I suppose, as, as they were inclined to. And we just endured it in many ways. <laughs> you know, it, you, you take the, you start with the notion that uh, we're coming out of a segregated world. They've been living in a segregated world and we're all boys and we're whatever age you are when you're in the ninth grade. And so you've got all this energy, you've got all this, uh, uh, you know, just energy to do any number of things. And, and now you're thrown into this new setting where you're, you're just uncomfortable with the whole thing. And it just took a while to, uh, to adjust to it, quite honestly. If you think back to uh, that year where you're entering into um, a school that is not segregated and go back to, you know, the way you saw the world and what you were thinking about in terms of um, the racial tensions that existed. And if you were to have dreamt about or thought about what, what it would be like, you know, say 50 years later, because we're probably 50 years later, are, are we further along less far along or some other comparison to what you would have dreamt of if you had done that back then? Well, realistically, um, from where I was sitting, it's going back to um, my time living with my grandmother. There's no way that I could have envisioned you know, my life, I'll just use my life as an example rather than uh, broad terms about uh, social, uh, social advancements and the like. There was no way that I could have envisioned the, the life that, that I now have from that vantage point. Uh, but I can't say that my grandmother didn't. Uh, you know, the beauty of, of, in many ways, this country is that my grandmother, was living in a rigidly segregated, discriminatory world. I mean, it, it didn't treat her anything approaching fair or treated her with anything approaching equality. But by the same token, she taught me that there were no limits to what I could accomplish. And when she told me that, if you think about it, there was no reason in the world that she should have believed it. But she did. She believed it with all her heart and she imparted it to me. Never told me that it would be easy. Never told me, frankly, that it would even be fair. Just that, you know, I had to work hard. I had to always do my best and that there were no limits on what I could accomplish. And I believed that, you know, she told me that and I internalized it and I believed it because I adored her. And, you know, that's the beauty in many respects of, of America, that you could take someone like her who was living with the reality of being discriminated against by the very country that, that um, she told me was full of opportunity. And yet she, she imparted to me uh, a belief that even in America, even given the things that I would face, and she knew them well, that there were no limits that I couldn't accomplish. And, uh, you know, that's the beauty of it. And, and, you know, she is, in my judgment, she's the epitome of, of, a, of a patriot, that she could recognize all of, the, all of the things that were wrong in this country, recognize all of the things that we didn't live up to, and yet set within me, and, and that within me, the notion that there are no limits. Well, well I want to know her name. I, what was her name? <laughs> her name was Emma Lou Fulges, Fulges, F-U-L-G-E-S. And uh, everybody called her Miss Daisy. 
Uh, everybody on the street knew her as Miss Daisy. And, um, you know, she was just a wonderful woman. What did you call her? Grandma. <laughs> um, and what did she call you? <laughs> she called me Junior. <laughs> Any idea what gave her that uh, vision, the, the hope, the ability to see beyond where the circumstances would have looked? Do you know what shaped her to be able to see that? You know, I don't know. I, you know, I never, you know, I never really asked specifically those kinds of things, but just knowing her, I mean, she was a deeply, uh, she had a deep uh, spirituality. Uh, she was uh, uh, a Christian and, and, and she was very genuine about her faith. Uh, she believed in, um, uh, the, she believed that God's hand was upon uh, her and that she um, could impart many of those values to me. And so she did. And uh, so that's, you know, that's the way I grew up. And those were the things mm -hmm. that were foundational to me. So uh, you go to law school. And if you were to capture you college and law school, if you were to tell me what was Rick Dean like, in, in one sentence, college and law school, what were you like? Well, in college, I, I think I, you know, I went to the University of Georgia, and I think when I got there, you know, there were roughly 18, 20,000 students. And uh, um, I think there may have been 20, 25 African-American students on the campus when I got there. And I think, you know, please, if I've got some of these numbers wrong, my impression was that there were about 60 or so uh, African-American students in my class. And so I went there in 1970. Now, this was the days before there were, there were no black athletes on campus. There were, I, I strike that, there were, there was one guy who ran track, I believe. And then a year or so later, I believe another, uh, Another guy played basketball, but there, I mean, there were, this was before the integration. Before Herschel? Oh, long before Herschel. Um, so it, it was a different campus when I got there. And um, so, uh, you know, what was I like? I, you know, I had very good friends around me and, uh, and uh, we just, uh, as best as we could, we tried to enjoy being on that campus. And the campus wasn't hostile to us, not overtly so. It was just not inviting or it was just not comfortable in a lot of ways. I can't say that there was any active uh, hostility towards us, but you know, just the numbers alone uh, reminded you that, that uh, you know, this was different. Yeah. Um... Law school, Georgia as well, and uh, take take me to the you're you're getting ready to graduate law school, and you're trying to figure out <laughs> what Rick Dean gonna do. Well, uh, you know, I finished law school in '77, uh, and um, I met a lawyer. And he was a black lawyer, and he was very helpful to me. His name was Ken Dias. Still practices there in, in, in Athens. And um, so I, I, I had started to look around. I had done reasonably well in law school, and, and I could usually get an interview with the various law firms and the like. But it was pretty clear to me very quickly on that, very early on, rather, that they weren't interested in hiring me. And uh, so I stopped interviewing. I mean, the big firms in Atlanta at the time uh, just weren't hiring uh, African-American lawyers. And there were, you know, very few, a handful uh, that were working at the larger firms in Atlanta. And, of course, the, the, the school, in terms of um, the placement office, is set up primarily to place, place you with 
big firms. And that just wasn't going to work for me. And, and, and I think there were, I think there were. Why do you say that? Why do you say it wasn't going to work? Well, it wasn't going to work because I, they weren't interested in hiring me. And I very quickly came to the notion that I wasn't interested in working for, for them. And um, so I, you know, I stopped looking in that, in that area for, uh, for a possible job. But of course, the school, the placement office is really only geared up, or at the time was really uh, primarily geared towards trying to place you in a, in a job like that. So I, you know, I just basically stopped looking and started trying to find something on my own. And I had uh, three or four other uh, uh, friends who were, we were graduating together. So we were basically doing the same thing. And um, so, you know, I started looking for jobs with the government. I started looking for jobs and, and spoke with my friend Ken, and he suggested smaller firms and the like. So I, I started, you know, working on my own, reaching out for those kinds of positions. And I recall one evening uh, I, was, um, I was watching TV after I think it was a Friday and I was just happened to be home and I was watching TV and there was a movie on and the movie was called attack on terror. And the, the movie was about uh, the killing of Goodman, Schwerner and Cheney in uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, the three civil rights workers. And so most of the movie was about the investigation that was done by the FBI. And then at the very end, there were, there was a, a lawyer, a scene rather, in which a, an actor is playing a lawyer who's arguing that case to a jury. And I, you know, I, I was somewhat naive and I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, I would like to do something like that. The, uh, the study you did in, in Michigan, what was the focus of the studying part? What did you get your LLM in? Well, you know, I focused on constitutional history, uh, primarily um, uh, the, the the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, that kind of that time frame. So focused on that primarily. And just for context, for those that are, don't often think of constitutional amendments, because we we're busy dealing with life and the practice of law. Uh, 13th is? Well, the amendments, the, the series of amendments uh, established citizenship for African-Americans, former slaves. It uh, uh, basically uh, uh, set up uh, equal protection uh, rights for uh, former slaves and then eventually gave uh, former slaves the right to vote. So that's the series of the amendments. What, if someone wanted to learn uh, a little bit more about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and didn't have time to do a two-year LLM, <laughs> is, 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 there, is there either like a TED Talk or a book or something out there that you think does a pretty good job framing constitutional history or the Supreme Court on those amendments? Yeah, well, yeah, there are there are a number, and you um, wouldn't focus just, I suppose, on the amendments themselves. You would want to understand the context in which they arose. One book that's that uh, recently, I think, has done a decent job of setting the context, both for those amendments and then thereafter, has been a book, White Rage. I think you and I have talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, I think is a pretty easy read and it gives you a good sort of uh, historical context, both for those amendments, but then the, the, what happened thereafter and uh, the Reconstruction period, uh, the Jim Crow Black Code period, going then into uh, Dred Scott, Plessy, Brown versus Board, and that whole time period. So that, that book, I think, White Rage, I was trying to remember the author's name. Uh, let's see, Carol Anderson. Well, while we're on it, what are, what are some others that, you know, as people are coming to you and everything that's going on in the world right now, and they're looking for resources to gain perspective, what are some other books that you're recommending? 
Well, uh, book that I really respect a lot is uh, Doug Blackman's uh, book, uh, Slavery by Another Name. He goes through and he chronicles how coming out of uh, coming out of Reconstruction, how uh, Jim Crow and then Black Codes were reinstituted. And then, and it's actually good to help understand how the criminal justice system was used to essentially re-enslave black people. Uh, and it's very well documented. I mean, it's really scholarly uh, done. Uh, but Doug Blackman's book is, I, I think, a very, very good one. And then most recently, um, a book by Richard Rothstein, a book called uh, The Color of Law. Uh, which is, I think, a really good read, particularly for lawyers to understand uh, a lot of the underpinnings of, of, you know, how it is and how it is that we came to have a lot of what I see or believe to be uh, the segregated uh, institutional kinds of uh, racism that we that we see nowadays this is not so easily and it's not so readily apparent but if you just pull back the veneer ever so slightly it, you know there it is and you can see it very easily and i think rothstein's book which focuses on um, residential segregation primarily is a very good uh, resource to help understand a lot of those issues from your perspective as uh your personal experience, but then going to be, you know, your experience as a federal prosecutor engaging with the criminal justice system, your experience as a chief federal prosecutor in the Northern District of Georgia, your experience as a federal magistrate, your experience as a managing partner uh, uh, in charge of the giant law firm. What are the systemic things you're seeing right now that you believe, you know, people need to be aware of? Well, you know, for those folks, I think one of the things, if you're watching the evening news and and some of the uh, news shows, uh, take note of the fact that virtually every African-American male that gets interviewed, and it doesn't matter what their station in life is, they could be the CEO of, some company, they could be the guy who cleans up, uh, you know, the high school in the evening. Uh, Almost all of those interviews, each one of them is going to have some story in which they're recounting, a personal story usually, they're recounting uh, an instance in which they have been demeaned, they have been harassed, and they have been likely, possibly even threatened by encounters with the police. And you can almost to a person ask uh, certainly any African-American adult male, and they're going to have those stories. And, you know, the, those stories are internalized. They are deeply, uh, you know, they have deep, uh, and lasting effect on people when you have those encounters. And it really doesn't matter, you know, there's no amount of education or standing or anything else that really insulates you from all of that. You're going to experience it more than likely as you go about, go about your everyday life. And, um, and I think that gives, you know, that gives you a sense for how endemic all of this is and how systemic it is. Um, that that the experience is so common. And uh, do you mind if I ask you, have you had uh, similar stories with demeaning, harassing, or threatening, even through the, you know, amazing career path that you've had? Well, sure. My, my careers, uh, I mean, my, my experiences are, are, are no different. I remember that there was one instance uh, that, I'll, that I'll mention. There are others, but I'll mention one in particular. I, I was a freshman, I believe, at the University of Georgia, and I had come home for the weekend, and I was with one of my buddies, and we 
gone out and we started a fast food place. And so he and I, we placed an order and it was a to-go order. So we were waiting on it and we were sitting there and, um, you know, we were just, uh, he had his feet in the aisle and uh, this white uh, guy came, was trying to get through the aisle. And, uh, and my friend and I were talking and he had his head turned away from uh, the guy who was trying to get by. And so the guy kicked it, kicked his leg. And he looked up and and he said, "Move your move your leg." And so that sort of set the tone. But but my friend was, you know, he had his feet in the aisle. He recognized that, so he he pulled his leg away, and we continued to talk. Well, we got our food and we went out to our car. I was driving my car actually, and we were driving away. And as we were driving away, I could see these two guys, two white males, sitting in a car off to the side. And uh, as we pulled out, they pulled out shortly after us. And so it didn't take long to realize that they were police. And they were in an unmarked car, but it was pretty obvious that they were the cops. And so I really, you know, rather than trying to take the route that would have just taken me home, which was a further route, I was really trying to get into uh, a black community that was right near where we were. And so... Uh, they pulled us over, uh, and, um, he, the one cop, uh, there were two of them. So the one guy who was driving came up to my side of the car and asked me, told me to get out of the car. And I did. He asked me for my ID and I pulled my ID. Well, among my IDs was, was my student ID as well. And so he, he had all of that and he was looking through it. In the meantime, the other guy who, who had kicked my friend, uh, and, and, and just to be candid, I'm a, my friend had given him a pretty bad look. He didn't say anything, but he gave him a pretty bad look when he kicked him, but he still moved his feet and so on. So this guy, you know, the police officer pulled him out of the car, pulled my friend out, uh, shoved him up against the uh, side of the car, uh, used some, uh, racial epithets with him and told him that, you know, I will pull my, you know, I will shoot you in the effing head and throw you in the river. Now we were right near the, uh, the Okmulgee river that runs through Macon and he's yelling at my friend and my, you know, my friend didn't, didn't say or do anything really in response. And in the meantime, the other officer who's dealing with me, um, is going through my ID and he recognizes and he asked me, he says, you're, you're a student at the university of Georgia. And I said, yeah, now that was a rarity back then, you know, to have a young African-American guy who was a student at UGA. I mean, that was, I mean, there were only a handful of us there. And so he said, uh, what year are you? And I said, well, you know, this is my first year. And, uh, and with that, he, he gave me my ID back and he turned to his, the other police officer and, and said to him, Hey man, let's let's just go and something to that effect. And so they they left us alone at that point. Uh, but you don't forget that. To prepare for interviewing you, I spoke with uh, some U.S. attorneys who were federal prosecutors who served with you, and oh. one of them sh- one of them shared a story about you encountering even when you were the United States attorney, just just tinges of racism and uh, how you walk through that. What, what, what has been like as someone who hasn't had that experience that you talked about, when I try to visualize it, I'm, I'm trying to visualize how you don't go crazy. You know what I'm saying? How you don't, how you stay calm how how have you kind of navigated the the waters of all of the racial tensions that you personally have experienced? You know, I don't know. I, you know, you, you say calm. I, I don't know that, uh, you know, I certainly don't feel calm when I'm experiencing it. Uh, and I and I think I see it perhaps in some ways because I, I read a lot of history and I read a lot of the how we got here stuff. Uh, I think I, I see it perhaps even in ways that maybe some others don't. 
but I, you know, I, I may have a calm exterior about it, but I, I certainly will never uh, accept it. And the thing that, that is my driver now is that certainly, you know, I have two boys. Uh, even when I was U.S. attorney, I had to counsel them on, you know, don't, don't assume that because I hold this position that if you encounter the police or they uh, stop you, that you're going to be treated any different. And so you've got to navigate that. I can deal with if they mistreat you, I can deal with that later, but I'm not there on the scene. And if the, you know, the, the important thing is for you to get through it, survive it. And I can deal with the aftermath, but, uh, but to get through it. Well, now, in addition to my sons, I've got two, two grandsons. And I get, and I can't tell you how how much I, I don't or didn't ever want them to have to experience all of this, and had hoped against hope that you know we'd come to a place where they wouldn't, but that's just not the case. Uh, you know, my my little grandsons are, you know, they're gonna, I mean, they're five, six. Uh, well, six right now, and then the other one is uh, twelve, I think. Uh, you know, they're gonna they're gonna experience some aspects of this world too, and uh, that is that's disheartening. But it also it also reminds me, you know, that I've got work yet to do. That I've got to be. I've got to be active. I've got to be doing all I can to protect them and to um, prepare them for what they're going to encounter. I would love for you to share, um, you know, because for people that may not uh, follow what a U.S. attorney is, it's a federal prosecutor who basically is the legal law enforcement officer for federal crimes. Um, when you were, uh, I'll, I'll say in power, not meaning to overstate that, but you were in power as a United States attorney. Um, could you share a little bit about the things that you were doing to try to address some of these systemic issues at that time? Well, uh, one thing that we did, uh, was that I had uh, uh, a, a, a woman in the office who was a certified police officer, and um, she was hired to uh, basically be the liaison between federal law enforcement and local law enforcement. And she was very, she was held in very high regard. She was very popular with uh, the police chiefs around and and even the even the officers had a lot of respect for her. And um, there's also um, another a local prosecutor who um, that I come to know and just had a lot of respect for as well. So what I did was uh, had those two uh, developed, and they had started some of this on their own, but they developed, and I. And, supported and encouraged them to develop uh, racial profiling training, um, which we started teaching as a part of the officer's uh, certification requirements. And um, it really became very effective, and so much so that we were starting to get requests for the training all over the country. Hypothetically, if we made Dean, uh, King of the United States of America, uh, in charge of the steps that we were taking to uh, make some positive change. And just for a second, if you could think with all the hope that Miss uh, Mrs. Daisy spoke into you back when you were junior, all the vision and all the optimism, despite the reality looking at you believing for unlimited potential if you were to to kind of design a, a five-minute plan what would you do 
Well, you know, I think uh, I think some of the proposals, the current proposals, uh, really have have the potential to really begin to make some make some changes. Uh, you know, I think the biggest change, quite honestly, the thing I'm most hopeful about is the very fact that the people that I see who are marching, who are protesting, who are saying this is wrong and it has to change, it's not just African American. Uh, Kids out there, uh, they're uh, they're Caucasian or white kids who are who are very actively participating in this, and in large numbers, and their communities, and and it's not just kids actually. You know, I live in, outside of Atlanta in the suburbs, and I, I was driving um, just last week, and I turned the corner, and there were probably 50, 60 people holding holding uh, signs and waving and so on. I didn't see an African American face in the crowd, and they were all, uh, you know, they were older, older uh, white men and women for the most part. So I'm hopeful that that people are starting to see, you know, just how deeply ingrained these issues are, because it's not enough to just not be racist. I think the times are calling us to be anti-racism and there's a difference. And, uh, I think what we may be seeing, I, I, I don't, I'm, it's, it's early perhaps, but what we may be seeing is a turn towards people recognizing the need to be anti-racism. And, um, hopefully, uh, that's going to bring about, some meaningful change, but in terms of what, you know, uh, maybe some uh, um, changes that could be implemented, and one that's being discussed is the whole notion of qualified immunity. I think there there would be significant benefit to changing that standard as a legal standard to hold police officers civilly accountable. Um, I, I just think that even Justice Thomas, who has, has written in his dissenting opinions about that, that as a legal concept, has said that, you know, it needs to be abolished. Um, I, I think arresting folks for minor offenses, traffic offenses, and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, there's no reason for that. Or even to have the option to arrest somebody for, for a minor offense like that. I don't think that should be a part of our, um, that's to be a part of policing. Um, I think there needs to be civilian review of, of police departments when they, when they, when their allegations or contentions of, of excessive force, a civilian review board that has, uh, has subpoena authority and the authority to act actually, uh, investigate the occurrence of, uh, police excessive force incidents. Uh, certainly, the database that most everybody talks about is necessary. Um, that is a database that captures uh, allegations and uh, complaints against police officers before they move from one department to another. I think you know. I think all of those uh, could be part of making some differences here. And I'm certainly there. Certainly, there are others, but those are the ones that come immediately to mind. You said it's not enough to not be racist. We we need people to become anti-racism. Can you unpack that just a little bit more? Well, it's not an original thought first, so I, I, I'll acknowledge that uh, um, a pastor friend of mine and I were talking about this, and he articulated it that way, and it just resonated with me, and I, and I absolutely believe that it was correct, that, you know, what we're dealing with is so deeply entrenched in, in our society. Uh, when, I, when I refer to it, I, I sometimes refer to it as the air we breathe. I, I think racism is a is a part of the air that we breathe. And you don't think about it, you just take your next breath. Um, and until we become intentional about first recognizing it, and then secondly, intentional about 
doing something about it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to have, I don't think we're going to be successful. Um, so that's what I see in these young people and, and not just young people, but uh, why to themselves are seeing uh, just how vile uh, racism is and can be. And so they're taking to the streets. And that's my point that, you know, they, they see the, the need to be anti-racism and they're taking steps to, to, uh, to say that. They're taking steps to hold, uh, hold police accountable. They're taking steps to, in, in whatever way that they can, to recognize uh, racism as a part of our, our culture and to take steps to fight it, to, com- to combat it. The, the cry that I'm hearing, whether it be my 18-year-old son who has been uh, out marching regularly in the hot Florida sun with his yeah. you know, anger, okay? His <laughs> anger, sheer 18-year-old anger. To uh, a very good couple friend of ours, who's uh, I would consider her, uh, you know, uh, uh, educated uh, mother who is in full time, you know, raising her kids and is just angry, is just frustrated, and and is saying to me, "What are we going to do?" And and to even my partner, who I was talking to right before I called you who said, I said, what question do you want me to ask Rick Dean? Like if I could ask him anything, he said, ask him what I do. I, I, people want to know who are not as uh, experienced in this issue and frankly don't have the background or haven't used the amount of hours like they want advice. I mean, just being real, they want they want wisdom on what steps they can take so that they're taking action. What what would you tell them? Let's start with my 18 year old son. (laughs) Let's start there. (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, I'm glad to hear hear about him. Uh, You know, I went out last Friday uh, for I'm on the board of a. Uh, charter school. Uh, actually, we run ten schools here in, in the city of Atlanta, and uh, so uh, we had we held some demonstrations and protests in one of the communities right around one of our schools. And so I was out last Friday with them, and um, and it was just it was encouraging. And we have board members and people who are supportive of our schools who. You know, they're trying to figure this out and trying to figure out what, what they should do. Uh, it's hard for me to articulate the specifics. Uh, I'll mention one episode. I, I, I attend a, uh, a church here, here uh, in my little area of Atlanta. It's known as Stone Mountain. And, um, and so I, I remember I was, it's an integrated, it's a small congregation, but it's an integrated congregation. I remember I was talking to the pastor one day, and this was long before now, and he was saying to me that, you know, I was, I was out in the backyard, and the guy next to me, the next door, my next door neighbor came across, and we were talking over the fence, and he was saying some vile things about um, black and brown people who were moving into the neighborhood that he lived in. And uh, he just, and, and he was telling me that, I, I think to highlight the point that, you know, the people had these, that his neighbors and others had this atti- these attitudes. And I, and I recall thinking, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't either surprised or, or frankly, uh, uh, stunned appreciably by the fact that the neighbors held that attitude. The thing that I wanted to know was, what did you say? And, uh, and I asked him that, and, uh, and and so we ended up talking about, and he he hadn't said anything, uh, or or at least nothing to confront uh, what he had heard, 
And so we ended up talking about that. And uh, I, I, I tell that story, I guess, to highlight the notion that the specifics of what you should do, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to articulate. I do think you need to understand more about the systemic nature of what we're contending with, because I think if you do understand it, then you, you can be more intentional about trying to dismantle it. Uh, even notions like uh, residential segregation and how we, how um, how it is that we came to have such starkly re uh, segregated uh, uh, communities. But to 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 have formulated the the sense that this is wrong and that this is fundamentally wrong, I think that becomes that in itself becomes the driver for what you should do. That you should go about living your life in the ordinary course, but with that as now a fundamental part of, of who you are and what you understand about your, your society. So whenever you encounter it, whenever you see it, however you're called upon to say something against it or to even point it out, then you'll do it. You'll know it. You'll recognize it. So, you know, it's hard for me to, and, and there are folks, and I've seen articles that talk specifics about what you should do or what you can do. Um, maybe I'm just not as informed about those as I should be. But, you know, I think it's more fundamental than that. I think if you come to conclude and come to recognize that this is wrong, what happened to George Floyd is universally recognized as wrong. I mean, you that was just grossly wrong what happened to him to 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 ever think that you as a police officer could just treat another human being that way. You heard those people standing on the sidewalk pleading with the officer to remove his knee from that man because he was killing him. And he he, he just kneel there with just absolute indifference. If you come to recognize how fundamentally wrong that was and you internalize how fundamentally wrong that was and have an understanding of the thought behind something like that, then I think you'll find your course. You'll chart your own path as to how it is that you respond to that. I'm going to deal with what I I consider to be, at least in my head, an elephant in my head, okay? Mm. So so I'm going to do later with you a, a one-word association. I'm going to say a word, and then I'm just going to ask you to say first thought that the first word that comes to your mind, like I could say ice cream, and you could say yummy, but I'll do it more meaningful things. When I say Black Lives Matter, one-word association. Absolutely. When I say all lives matter, one word association. Truth. How do you respond? Because I'm, I'm going to get real with you. When I see the all lives matter, there's a piece of me that feels like, of course, everyone agrees that. But that's not what we're talking about. That's, that's right. how I feel. It drives me crazy. I'm just being as honest as I can. I'm not judging anyone. I'm an imperfect guy, imperfect thoughts. But when I see all lives matter, I'm, I feel like no one is saying police officers' lives don't matter. No one is saying we, we want police officers to be unnecessarily put at risk. No one is saying we don't want any power in the police department. What we're saying is right now there's racial discrimination, racism, racial profiling, racial imbalances, systemic problems. That's what we're talking about. And so I feel like every time someone says all lives matter, they're not acknowledging the fundamental thing. And just to go one step further, I feel like unless they're a kid, there's no way I can even change their mind. Like I, 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 what, what would you counsel me? Well, when you when you limited me to saying a one word word response to the notion that all lives matter, my, my response is true, and it is true. But black lives are the ones that are at risk from what we see as as 
and I think we'd have to acknowledge what we see as systemic issues that have have just been long, long standing in this country. So that's you know that's the focus, and it has to be the focus that uh, it's black lives that are being put at risk. It's black lives who are being threatened and demeaned. Uh, uh, and so that's where our focus has to be. And we have to look at what our history in this country has been to recognize that, that, you know, as I said, it's the air that we breathe. And if we don't take, you don't think about your next breath, you just take it. And until you start, until you start to recognize that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these things that we take for granted, that we look at and take no notion of, uh, that are inequities in our society, uh, they're real and they have their they have their origins in the notion that black people are less than or other than, and because they are, they can be treated in a in a demeaning way. They can be discounted. Do Do you believe, like, if you're speaking to my 18-year-old son and, frankly, his 50-year-old dad, who both are questioning the people that are racist, that are older, that have been brought up in it and around it. I just, I don't want to say these words, but I wonder, can you actually change their mind or really do we need to use our energy trying to change the systems that are problematic? In terms of younger people, um, whether, whether older, uh, folks, particularly older whites can, can see and understand, can appreciate this or whether they're just breathing. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but the thing that gives me hope, whether they're, whether the older people's minds can be changed, I'm less concerned about them encouraging uh, what I see, hoping that what I see is going to make a difference, a fundamental difference and change. And then even if, if, if young people internalize and recognize that racism is endemic to, to our society and they want to change that, they can force that change. So there may be people, there may be others, there may be older people who don't get it, but you can force the change that you want to see if you, if you, you know, if you have sufficient numbers, if you have sufficient political power, if you have sufficient uh, uh, cooperation uh, to bring about those kinds of changes, they can, they will occur, and so whether older older whites can 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 appreciate understand and accept this notion i i don't know but i think that's less important than the fact that what we're seeing and i, and I don't there certainly don't mean to write off uh, older older uh older whites I, that wouldn't be fair so i don't you know i don't want to paint with too broad a brush but i can just tell you where my hope lies and that is in, is in what I see in these younger people. I was out Friday, as I said, and I was just, I was just so encouraged by uh, just the young folks that I saw there and got to interact with. And, and um, I think that's, that's the hope. There's a bunch of topics I want to, I want to talk about trial preparation. I want to talk about your, uh, your personal style. Cause I think, you really do have a timeless style. There's a lot I want to talk to you about, but before we leave today, uh, I asked three questions of every person that I've, I've, I've had the chance to interview. And the first one is if you could impart one piece of wisdom to young lawyers, one to five years on any topic, what would it be? Well, as, as young lawyers, I, I guess the, the one thing that, that I would tell them is that uh, you capitalize on every opportunity. Never, 
never underestimate the significance of an opportunity. Because what I've found is that, you know, you encounter people, you encounter a project, you do a piece of work. People remember that. If you do quality work, you, you treat the, the project with, uh, uh, you know, with the, or give it rather, the attention that it deserves and you do quality work. You'd be surprised at, at how far down the road it might be that somebody recalls that and comes back to you. It, it comes back to you just because of, of their recognizing the quality of person that you are and the quality of work that you do. So you want to capitalize on every every opportunity is is, is sort of the approach I would think and um, and and never underestimate an opportunity. No, never do less than your best. Yeah, that's great. That's very real, real good. Let's go to a second group. Uh, these are folks that are beyond their kind of initial, you know, uh, getting their lawyer legs underneath them, uh, but they're, they're probably not quite partner in a law firm. They're, say, five to 10-year lawyers. If you could speak into that group, what would you speak? You know, I think for that group, uh, the, the, you know, um, probably the important piece of advice uh, that I, I could offer really from experience more so than wisdom or anything is to work on your craft. Be serious about it and work on it. And, um, you know, just take it to heart. Really serious. <laughs> Siri, Siri is uh, activated here because she thinks I've, I've uh, I, I was speaking to her, but what I was saying is that you you want to be serious about the craft and work on it. Uh, if you want to be good, work at it and develop. You'll you'll you're going to develop a reputation anyway. Uh, so you want it to be good. You want it to be a good one, and that comes largely through work. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I once heard somebody say, "You're you're." You're going to have a career reputation, whether you like it or not. You might as well influence yeah. it. And I, <laughs> I love that working on your craft. Let's move to the the third group. And this these are people that have uh, they've established some level of stability in their career. Uh, they're say 45 to 55, and uh, but they still have a lot of gas left in the tank. They they're mm -hmm. they still have. Uh, more that they know they are meant to accomplish or achieve and uh, and they want advice, what advice would you give to that group? Well, you know, I, I, I think uh, for that group, I would suggest that be open to and be willing to take on new challenges, uh, to be stretched, to do things that, uh, that perhaps you, you wouldn't have envisioned yourself doing. You know, as I think back on my career, I've been very fortunate, um, even though I've on occasion remained in, say, the same place, for instance, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, almost, as I look back on it, almost every four years, and there's nothing magical about four years, but almost every four years, I've gotten to do something significantly different than the previous four years. And... Um, and that's just really been, um, it's been very good for me in terms of keeping me interested and motivated. And uh, I think it made me more uh, rounded, well-rounded uh, as, a, as a lawyer. But overarching all of this, too, I, you know, I, I'd have to say to any, any young lawyer, mid, mid lawyer in mid-career, and then perhaps one who's a little further down, um, focus on family and friends. You know, th those are the things that are going to, th those are the things that are going to uh, be meaningful to you over time. And they, they're, they're more important than, than, frankly, all of these other things. But in terms of the career, yeah, you want to capitalize on the opportunities, you want to work on your craft, and you want to take on the challenges, but yeah, you gotta you gotta keep in mind what's important. 
Yes. Well, Rick, an absolute privilege for me to kind of be able to pry your brain and get some of your stories out. I appreciate your uh, generosity and your time and your vulnerability in sharing. And uh, I'm just glad I got a verbal confirmation that they'll be round two. Well, Dave, I, I've really enjoyed uh, first meeting you, uh, meeting you at the, through, through the college. I've enjoyed that. But then to uh, have this opportunity, I've appreciated that as well. So thank you.